Man, that song. I love that song so much. It just reminds me of when I was a teenager and we were being, it was, I, I got saved like during that Jesus revolution. I wasn't a hippie, but my older brothers and sisters were. And I remember getting saved that time. And I remember just thinking and being told all the time, Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. And at that point, honestly, I didn't want him to come. I'm like, I still have my whole life before me. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to have a career and all that stuff like that. But I tell you what, when I look at the way the world is today, I'm like, even so, Lord Jesus, come. I just want him to come. I feel like there's so much suffering in the world today. There's so many people that are hurting. When you consider the sex trafficking, the, the violence, just the, all the things that are going on, the only one, the only one who can fix it is who? It's Jesus. And so I think about what the church in Revelation was going through and how they were being persecuted and they were praying, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And so I, I feel like we're in that situation right now. Um, so we're continuing with the book of Genesis. For those of you who are new, we've been studying the book of Genesis and that's what we like to do here at Revolution Church. We take books of the Bible, we study them the way that God wrote them, we study them verse by verse. So it's not going to be a pop psychology motivational message. It's going to be studying the Word of God so that you and me can become more like Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm going to be the scripture reader this morning. And so if you want to follow along on the screen, we're going to read. It's a long chapter, 24 verses. But it says, and this is, this is like the apex of Genesis. This is the climax. This is one of the most important chapters in it. So I'm glad that you're here. Uh, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will tell you of. Got to stop there for a second, don't you? Just said, what did he just ask him to do? Well, we'll read on. I just want to pause and let that sink in. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and, he, and rose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to the young man, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the, the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went together, both of them. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order <clears throat> and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Micah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Abraham, Chesed, Hezad, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Micah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Rumah, bore Teba, Geam, Tehash, and Makkah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many of you grew up Catholic or some denominations that uh, celebrated Lent? Anybody did Lent? What is Lent? It's basically when you give up something for the day, the weeks leading up to Easter and celebrating all that. And there's pros and cons to Lent. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to do Lent. I'm not against Lent, but I'm not pushing it for Lent. But it's interesting that it is good. There are times in our life where it is good to give up something for God. But what about your only son? Abraham's asked to do much more than Lent. He's not asked to give up chocolate for 40 days. He's not given, asked to give up beer or give up something else for, for Lent. He's asked to give up his son, his only son, Isaac, who God had promised him. Now, there is a great chiastic structure in this passage. And for those of you who are new to Revolution, a chiastic structure is like a sandwich. It has bread on the top and bread on the bottom, and it works its way in. And the most important part is in the middle, the meat of the sandwich. And, and so God shows us what is the most important part of each passage by these structures. You'll notice it, from chapter 11, right up here to 22, it starts with a genealogy and it ends with a genealogy. And then it talks about how he wants him to go forth into a land that he doesn't know about. And here he's going to ask him to go forth uh, on a journey to a land to sacrifice his son. And then it talks about how Sarah was taken by a king. The first time it was which king? Remember? Pharaoh, right? And then later on, he, she's taken by a king again. Which king is at that time? It's a, a, right, it's Abimelech, okay? So there, you see the, the structure building there. And then you see Sodom is defeated, Lot is rescued. And, I'm sorry, there, there's the defeat of Sodom, Lot's rescued, and then Sodom's saved from, rescued out of that when, when Abraham gets his own private army and rescues Lot and, and rescues all the people of Sodom. But then later what happens with Lot is Abraham's pleading for Sodom. Lot gets rescued this time, but not by an army. Who, do, who rescues Lot this time? Yeah, God through two angels, right? And then this time Sodom's destroyed. And then it keeps working its way in 
God makes a covenant through walking through the animals, but then God makes another covenant through circumcision. But at the very heart of the cast, this caste structure is Abraham's name is changed from Abram to Abraham, and God makes a very personal covenant with him there. And so it shows us the most important part right now of Abraham's life is that God wants to have a personal relationship with him. And he's orchestrating all these events in history to lead up to that moment to where he changes from Abram to Abraham. And it's a great conversion in his life. And so that's the focus of, of that passage. So you say, Gary, is there a chiasm in this, in this chapter, chapter 22? There is, but Gary, is this really necessary that we go into all these chiastic structures? So again, if God gives us a tool to show us what the most important, of the pas- important part of the passage is, we need to pay close attention to it. And I think you'll find this one just absolutely beautiful. And I know you can't see all this, but it starts off in this story. <clears throat> God calls out to Abraham and says, here I am. And take your son, your only son. And then he ends the passage with the same thing about here I am. And then he moves on about cutting the wood, taking the wood, laying the wood, and then taking the fire and knife. And then it builds down to build the altar, uh, to lay the wood on the altar. You see the parallel. And so when the Bible seems repetitive, this is what's happening here. He's building this structure for us to point to the very middle. And then it's interesting, it says, so they both went that both of them together, and then it repeats it, so they went both of them together. Which is, the parallel point here is, this was not just about testing Abraham. Isaac was being tested here too. As we'll see here a little bit, Isaac is at least 17 years old. How old is Abraham? 100 years old. Could a 17-year-old outrun a 100-year-old? Could he not could he jack the jaw of his hundred-year-old dad and get out and say, you're not killing me? Isaac is being tested here too, and we don't see anywhere along the way where he fights this process. So that's why the Bible is showing this twice, that they went through this thing together. And then what's at the very middle is, is my son, a lamb for the burnt offering, a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. See the poetry there? And that's what it's building to. And we'll, we'll Keep that in your mental note there. So here we are in Genesis 2. I'm going to divide up in a few different ways. There's the call to sacrifice. There's the willingness to sacrifice. There's the replacement sacrifice. There's the blessings of obedience. And then finally, the blessings in the future. And we'll go through these five points pretty quickly here. So God tests you to succeed. Satan tempts you to fail. Whenever you're going through something difficult in life, God is allowing it because God is sovereign. Amen? There's nothing that happens that's out of God's control. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God, right? There's no surprises. So think about what's the worst thing you're going through right now or going through recently. God didn't go, oh man, I wish didn't see that coming. He's allowing it for a reason to test you. Now, in that painful process, Satan will tempt you to not glorify God in it. You remember our friend Job, all that he went through, the loss of 10 children, loss of one child is enough, 10 at one day, okay, going through a physical plague, losing all his possessions, everything. Satan tempts him in that whole process to not glorify God. God is testing him to give the glory to God. And of course, Job passes the test. And so it says that, that in the next slide here, that we will always be dealing with trials and tests. And trials and tests, I put that together because they're the same thing. A trial, a test is the same thing. And then sometimes we're not dealing with those things as much as we're dealing with consequences. So if you speed and you get a speeding ticket, 
You can't say, well, God's testing me. No, you're being an idiot. You're driving too fast, okay? And I'm calling myself that because I've done that in the past. Uh, I've, I've broken that habit. I used to have the worst lead foot. That's a whole other story. But anyway, I haven't got a ticket in a very long time. But So you have to separate trials and tests from consequences. Some people get really upset, like, oh, why am I going through this? Well, well, like, well you married the jerk. That's why you're going through a divorce right now. God didn't make you marry him. Everybody in your family told you don't marry him. And now you're complaining that life is so bad because you're married to a jerk. And now you're going through all this pain. And like, why is God doing all this? No, there are some things that we do to ourselves. And if you've done that to yourself, say, oh, me. <laughs> We've all done that to ourselves, okay? We've all done painful things. So those things aren't always the test from God. Then there's some things that happen where we're walking with God, we're doing the best we can, and then out of the blue, here comes unemployment. Here comes cancer. Here comes a child with a bad diagnosis. All those things. And none of that has to be necessarily because you did anything wrong. It's a test. It's a trial. And did you know that even in times of peace, when like there's nothing bad going on, like I'm really happy right now. I'm, man, the job's going good. We got the house we like. I got the car I like. Our marriage is actually going pretty good. Boom, nothing wrong. Even that is a test. How will you handle that? Because you know what most Christians do, and especially most American Christians do, when everything is going good? We don't need God anymore. We're lukewarm. We're, we're just like, hey, I've, I've got it. And all of a sudden, we are not desperately crying out to God. We're not spending much time on our knees. We're not spending much time in the Word because we don't need all that. That's for when you're in a time of crisis. Wrong. Even the time of peace can be a test that we could fail or we could pass. So God cries out to Abraham, and Abraham says, here I am. And you see that this is a pattern, not only of Abraham, who says it several times, but several great heroes in the Old Testament have a way of answering God saying, here I am. And it's not just, you know, well, God, I'm, I'm over here. It's like presenting yourself to, to him and saying, what do you want? I'm at your service. You know how like some butlers or maids will do in the old school days of, here I am at your service. You're, 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 uh, what's the phrase? Um, your will is my pleasure, right? Or whatever. Anyway, some, some type of servant attitude. That's what Abraham is saying. And this is a man who has hundreds and hundreds of servants. He knows how to be one. He knows how to present himself. <clears throat> it's often been said that the best ability is availability. Presenting yourself to God, that should be, that should be our cry every day. God, here I am. Not my will, but yours be done. Presenting yourself as a servant to God, saying, I'm available, God, to do whatever you want me to do. So he says, now take your son, your only son, Isaac. Does anybody find anything curious about that phrase, only son? Who, who's being overlooked here? Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn. But as we learned last week, what did Hagar do? They, they left. She took, she, Hagar took Ishmael to Egypt. Again, she's kicked out. Again, but that's not all her fault. But she does something very big. She marries him to an Egyptian. You know what that does to his lineage? He's cut out of the family will. He's no longer in the inheritance of Abraham because he's married into another tribe now. And so now that all falls into there. And from the very beginning, God made it clear, hey, I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. But they tried to short-circuit God's will and do plan B with Hagar. 
And God says, no, 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 I'm still sticking to my plan. And so I only recognize Isaac as your son, your only son. So for all intents and purposes, he's the only son that's around, but he's also the only son that matters. But God's going to really pour it on here. He said, you know, your son, Isaac, the one you really love, he said, I'm going to ask really something big of you. You see, this is very interesting, and this is not by coincidence. This is the first time the word love is used in the Old Testament. Here we are, 22 chapters in the Genesis. Have you, we, have you seen the word love yet? We have not. Okay, But what's interesting, parallel, is the first time in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament, love is used here in Matthew 3.17. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Do you see the parallel? Abraham's only son whom he loves. God's only son, Jesus, whom he loves. There's a, a direct connection there between the two of them. He says, and I want you to offer him, and that, plant that word in the back of your mind, I want you to offer him there as a burnt offering. Is God wrong here? If, if, you, if you are on the social media at all, you will see the atheists really look at this story and say, no, oh, God is a big, mean ogre. How would dare God ask for human sacrifice? He, and God's such a hypocrite because he condemns human sacrifice over here, but here he's asking Abraham to do human sacrifice. What kind of God would do that? If you're serving a God who would ask you to kill your own son, you're serving the wrong God, and atheists have a heyday with that. But is God really doing something wrong here? Let's talk about it. Is he commanding them to commit murder? Well, let me give you nine reasons why God is just in this situation. First of all, keep in mind that God did not have him go through with it. We could really talk bad about God if God said, yeah, kill him. And, and, and we, we could back off and say, yeah, that's really questionable. It didn't happen, right? We know, spoiler alert, at the end of the story, the angel steps in and says, don't hurt him. We just read it, okay? So it's, I guess it's not much of a spoiler alert. So also, number two, keep in mind that this is a test. This is a test. God is not doing something wrong. He's simply testing him. I remember one time I was uh, a director of a youth camp for teenagers and um, in fact, your sisters were at this camp, I think. <laughs> and uh, I had a handful of kids that decided to skip chapel one morning. And they thought I wouldn't notice. And I made it very clear, we don't skip any services. And also, this camp was located in an area where if you left the campgrounds, you, know, you were going into a town, so it, it, could, be, it could be a bad situation. But anyway, they, they snuck out and they skipped that. And so I found out and I called them all in. I said, hey, you guys knew the rules. You broke the rules anyway, and so here's, what, here's your consequence. You guys go pack your bags. And some of them looked at, you know, three of the five looked at me in horror. Two of them that were like the rebellious ringleader, like, whatever, I don't care, you know. One boy, uh, Bubba, that's his, that was his name, Glenn was his real name, just started crying immediately because his dad was super strict. And he just started crying, and he's like, Brother Gary, please don't. I don't want to go home. I don't go home. And uh, they, all the other ones left to go pack their bags. And I, I, said, and he, I said, well, Glenn, you know you shouldn't have done that. And we're just talking back and forth. And finally, I just felt like I had to have mercy on him. I said, Glenn, here's what I asked you to do. I said, go pack your bags. I never said go home. And what I did to the five of them, I had them all pack their bags, bring them all downstairs. And I said, okay, now here's the thing. There, there is punishment, but there's also mercy. And I'm going to show you mercy and you guys get to stay. Your punishment was to pack your bags. So that was a test. I did, all I said was pack your bags. They read into it, I'm sending you home. God said to Abraham, offer your son. He didn't say kill him. He just said offer him. And of course, again, I don't want to read too much into that, but 
God asked him to offer his son, but then later you'll see God refuses to offer. So it's in, it, was, it was a test, but also number four. So atheists, it's interesting, who judge God for being wrong in a situation, they have to borrow from God's standard to do that. God's the one who said, thou shalt not murder. If you're an atheist, where do you get your moral law from? Evolution requires murder. It's the survival of the fittest. The strong eat the weak. So how can you morally say God is wrong for having someone kill someone when evolution kills all the time? You know, selection comes from the survival of the fittest, and that's how, according to evolution, every species improves because there are murders going on all the time. The strong eating the weak. So what is your moral objection to God doing something that your worldview requires? You're having to steal God's Ten Commandments, the God who doesn't exist, and put them on God and say you're not keeping your own commandments. So the, the hypocrisy there is, is overwhelming. And so as what's also interesting is atheists also get mad at God for not stopping evil. Well, if there's a God, why does he allow tsunamis? Why did he allow all those thousands of people to die in Turkey in the earthquake? Why did God let this happen to me when I was a little kid? So you get mad at God for not stopping evil. But then when God says, destroy the Canaanites who are murdering their babies, you say, oh, God's guilty of genocide. Wait a minute, you just said, God, stop the evil. So then when God stops evil, you say, oh, look at God, he's a murderer. It's Again, it's, a, it's another incredible double standard. <clears throat> Number six, God, the creator of life, has the right to take life at any time. It's not murder for God to take a life. Because God's the giver of life. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, according to Job. But also, in God's worldview, people don't die, they just change locations. So when he ends someone's physical life, he's taking them to another physical, uh, spiritual place. Now, where that spiritual place is, is up to their choice, as we know, on whether they accept Christ or not. But God is the creator of life. He has the right to take it at any time. Thou shalt not murder is for us, but if he asks them to take him as a sacrifice. But also, this is probably the biggest point here, and it's kind of complicated, so hang on with me here. There's the principle of primogeniture. I've, I've used that word before. You know, in that culture, this is not a biblical command, but in that culture and in many of the cultures around the world, and in many cultures even today, the firstborn son becomes the ruler of the family when the dad passes on. And he's being groomed for that his whole life. And so when he reaches a certain age, especially around 30, big amounts of property, treasure, wealth are given to him, and then he's the one who distributes it to the siblings as he sees fit, as dad gets older in his years. So the, 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 the primogenitor, the, the firstborn son, is really responsible for the whole family. So let's say a clan over here has a beef against a clan over here. You know who they appealed to? The firstborn son. They said, hey, some of your employees stole some of our sheep, and you need to pay up. And so it comes out of his pocket, because he's the one responsible. And if something even more serious happens, often you'd see the firstborn son die as a responsibility for the whole family. Again, the Bible doesn't embrace that. That's what they did in that culture. So God is using this tool this paradigm of primogenitor to teach a lesson here about how Abraham has sinned, Sarah has sinned, and now I'm calling in a payment for your sin, and I'm calling in Isaac. That's what, that's what Abraham is thinking at this time. Abraham knew that if Isaac died, and this is another thing that makes this not murder, Abraham knew full well that if God, if God would require him to kill Isaac, 
that God would resurrect them from the dead. You say, well, Gary, where do you get that? We get that from the divine commentary in Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received from the promise, was in the act of offering his son, he's raised in life, he considered that God was even able to raise him from the dead. He knew that, hey, if I sacrifice him, God's raising him from dead because God promised through this child there's going to be descendants by the tens of thousands. So I know that if I kill him, God's bringing him back to the dead. And I don't know how that's going to happen. He's never seen a resurrection happen, but he knows, he has faith in God that God's going to bring him back to life. But the biggest issue is that we, as rebels at heart, do not want God to be God. That's the problem. We as human beings don't want God to do what God does best and be God. We, want him, we only want him to do things that we approve of. And so when people look at this in the Bible and say, look, see, God's calling for human sacrifice. See, God, they're just trying to find a scapegoat, a reason to let God not be in control of their life. And whether you're a, a believer in Christ or you're not sure about being, or you're fully against this, all of us have rebellious hearts. And that's really our problem. We don't want God. And so when God does things we disagree with, we say, see, that's a reason not to listen to him about anything. You know, as if God has to agree with us on everything. The ultimate irony is that this story is that's so repulsive to some atheists and skeptics, it's so beautiful to those who know the love of God. This is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Bible. And the question we have to ask is, had Isaac become an idol to Abraham? You know, he'd been waiting for the son for a long time, <laughs> a long time. And now he's 100. He finally has a son that's the, the, the son of the promise. And now he's about 17 years old and God is wanting to take him back. I think that part of the test is he was idolizing his son. Don't know that for sure, but I think that's very possible. Have you seen our culture today? We idolize our kids, okay? Uh, we, we uh, you know, there, there was patriarchy, and then there's all these things, but I believe we live in kindergarten, where the kindergartners, where are we going to eat tonight? The kids say McDonald's, McDonald's. Dad's like, oh, I don't hate McDonald's. But everybody goes to McDonald's because the kids want it. What movie are we going to see? The kids pick. What, what kind of pet are we going to have? The kids pick. I mean, kids seem to pick everything in our culture today, and we've kind of got an unhealthy balance. I remember when I was in high school, I played basketball and soccer. My dad never came to a single game. Never did. And that's all. And I really didn't even think much about it. I, I really didn't. You know when it occurred to me that my dad never came to my game? When I was a dad and my kids were playing in games. And I thought, wow, has the pendulum swung? And how sports are such a big deal. And parents spend thousands of dollars on basketball, girls softball, soccer, whatever. And everybody gets a trophy, whether they win or not. And I'm just like, man, flood these kids with attention. It's just all about the kids. And, the, and we drop everything. We miss work to make these tournaments. We do all kinds of stuff. And I think that maybe Abraham had built his world around Isaac. And God's saying, you know, you need to build your life around me. But again, God is compassionate and mercy. He, doesn't, he only makes it a test. Let me ask you, let me ask me, what's the one person or what's the one thing that you would have a hard time putting on the altar? Spouse, child, like this situation, your career, your health, your looks, your pornography, your 
lies, things that you're hiding from people? What would be the one thing you'd really have, if it was, had to be laid down and say, you will no longer have this in your life, that it would crush you? God tests us oftentimes to see if that's true. All of us, and I mean all, including Gary, all of us as believers are called to sacrifice. We're called to sacrifice on a regular basis. One of my favorite verses, and many of you have memorized is Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, all of your fleshly desires, all the things that your ego wants, all the things that your pride is so proud of, all the things that make up your world. God says, I want you to present that as a living sacrifice. See, I see Isaac in this passage right here. He was offered as a sacrifice, but yet he lived. And God's not asking you to die, although in there are circumstances where Christians are called to die, but God's asking you to sacrifice yourself, to do what our Savior said, to take up your cross daily, how often daily, and be that living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What did Abraham, it says, he told the two young men, you guys stay here, me and the son are going to go and worship. Man, this nightmare that he was living, he called it worship. To sacrifice to God, to give something to God that means something to you, he called it worship. And God calls us all to do that. He says, and I want to, I want to send you to a mountain that I'm going to tell you of. In other words, he doesn't tell him right off the bat. Does that sound familiar? That's like deja vu all over again. Abraham wants you to get up, leave the earth of the Chaldees, go to a land that I will show you of. And Abraham's like, where are we going? I'll show you when we get there. And here he's doing it again. I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to go to a mountain, but I won't, I'm not going to tell you where it is. Just go. Once again, Abraham is walking by faith. But I believe that when he called him out of the earth of the Chaldees, he was preparing him for this moment. That had to ring a bell. I'm going to send you to a land that you don't know about. Man, that's what you called me for the first time, and now you're calling me to do it. So he's been here before, and God, in his mercy, does that. He prepares us for tests in advance. So the second thing is, we only have the call to sacrifice. Now we see Abraham's willingness to sacrifice. Abraham does what so many great people in the Bible do. He gets up early. Okay, teenagers, you hear that? He gets up early. Okay, I know you guys don't like that. I have to make myself get up early. There's pros and cons of the snooze button, right? It, it could be the worst thing you ever had as an option. They say it's not actually good for you. But anyway, Abraham got up early. But I also wonder if he didn't sleep. And it's like, let's get this over with. You know, and it, he needs to get through this because he doesn't really know. I'm sure. Can you imagine his situation here? Wrestling with this? I know God can raise him from the dead, but, but will he raise him from the dead? And kill my own son? This I don't understand. And, and yet we don't see anywhere where Abraham complains, questions, or even discusses this with God. He's just up, he's at it, he's gone for it, okay? And it's also interesting that he took two young men. How many times have we seen already where there's two angels? There's two angels. How many angels went down with Sodom with, to rescue Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah? How many angels were with the Lord when he came to eat the meal? Two angels. How many angels were at the resurrection? Two angels. So I think this is kind of a picture of that. Here's a sacrifice, on the altar, and what's on, what's on the side of on the Ark of the Covenant? Two angels. So these two young men, I think, are a picture of that. And, and this is a painful situation. I remember my son Lance, who's my second oldest son. One time, we, were, we went, my father-in-law was in the hospital. This is before cell phones, okay? I'm, I'm an older person, okay? And so my wife was staying with her dad, and we're driving home, and... Uh, and we go back to the house where my in-laws live. 
And we open the back door, and Lance runs in there, and he runs around the corner, and he slips, because on a slippery floor, and he, he didn't have his shoes on, and he catches the piece of furniture, boom, right split, splits his forehead wide open. I mean, it, blood is flowing everywhere. It's all over the place. And I pick him up, I run him back out to the van to go back to the hospital where my father-in-law was, but I can't call on a cell phone and say, hey, here's what happened. My wife and mother-in-law come home to the house and there's nobody there and there's blood everywhere, okay? Crazy scene in this situation, okay? And so then um, they put them in the emergency room and they're going to have to do stitches. So there's me, there's a nurse, there's a nurse, there's a nurse, and we're holding Lance down. They have this sheet cut where he could see with his eye and then there's another hole here where the stitches are going and they have it like draped over here and like strapped around him so he can see me and when they, the doctor can see this, and Lance is looking at me like, and he's thinking, like, why are you letting these people hurt me? And I'm helping hold them down while this doctor is hurting him with the stitches. And um, I'm looking at this, and I'm seeing this needle go through my, my son's forehead, and um, I'm like this, and I, I think I'm focused, I think I'm tuned in. And the doctor goes, Dad, and I look up, and he goes, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you need to sit down. He said, you're white as a ghost. And I, I, just seeing my son bleeding and being stitched, and it just like the blood had left my face, I probably would have passed out, I guess. So I sat down for a little bit. But I'm only seeing my son being harmed by someone else, and it's killing me. Imagine you're the one that, that's holding the knife. It, it's an awkward situation, to say the least. And so it says, and he, Abraham, cut the wood. Now, wait a minute. This is a man who has hundreds and hundreds of servants. The wood could have been cut by anybody, by the two young men, by any of his servants, but Abraham chooses to cut cut it himself. Maybe this was therapy as he's chopping. He's like, God, how can you do this to me? I don't really understand what's going on. Maybe it's therapy as he's cutting the wood here. And then, but this is a picture of how the Father works to prepare the sacrifice. You see this beautiful picture in the New Testament, how our Heavenly Father is not just some cosmic force out there that sits back and does nothing. There was a couple hundred years ago a very popular religion called deism. Thomas Jefferson, second president of the United States, was a deist. Deists believe that God created the universe like you create a clock, you wind it up and then you set it down and you walk away and you have nothing to do with it. It runs itself. That is not our God. Our God is extremely involved. He is working for us all the time. Don't just take my words for it. Listen to what Jesus said. When they got on to Jesus about working on the Sabbath, he said, oh yeah, you want to talk about work? My father is working until now. He's talking about on the Sabbath. And I'm working. You want to talk about work? God, my father, and me, we're working all the time. We're always working for you. Romans 8, 28 says, and you know this verse by heart, most of you, we know that for those who love God, all things what? Say it. Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, in the Greek, it's not really clear how this works. It's, it's like, let me, let me, in fact, the, the, uh, the CEV says it even better. We know that God is always at work for the good of everyone who loves him. God is always at work. Think about your life. Think about how complicated it is right now. Think about how busy it is, how you wish, man, I wish I could take a vacation. I wish I just had eight days a week or 27 hours a day. I just feel like there's so much to do. Did you know that God is always working on your behalf? Over one-third of your life is spent sleeping. It's interesting that God made man to be that way. 
you know, we, we have eight hours at work, eight hours for other stuff, eight hours of rest. There's the Trinity in our day right there. God's Trinity is everywhere, right? But I believe, and John Piper said it this way, that God created sleep to give you eight hours every day to remind you that you are not God and that while you're sleeping, he's still working. And he's working all things together for good if you love him. And so that's really good to know that your Heavenly Father is constantly working. And I think Abraham, the father, is working to create the sacrifice that, that he will do for his son. And it's interesting in verse 4, it says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes. The third day, that's not only a great name of a great Christian band, but it, it's a great concept in Scripture. On the third day of creation, what did God create? Trees. Abraham laid the wood on Isaac's back. Of course, Christ carried his own cross, and Christ resurrected on the third day as well. Um, when God descended down on Mount Sinai, his, his glory filled the tabernacle and the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. All that happened on what day? On the third day. Um, Israel and Hosea prophesied that they would be taken up out of ex exile on the third day. And then, um, and then Jonah, how many days was Jonah in the whale? Three days, right? And then Hezekiah was told on the third day after they repented and everything like that, they could go back into the temple. And of course, Esther went before the king after three days of preparation. So it's a beautiful picture how this third day, it's not a coincidence here. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, think of some prophecies in the Old Testament. There's over 300 about Jesus' first coming. Many of them prophesy his death in particular. Psalm 22, they've pierced my hands and my feet, right? And we can go on and on about prophecies of Christ's death. But then it says he was buried, and then he was raised again the third day in accordance with the scriptures. My question is, what scriptures? Can anybody name a prophecy about Jesus rising from the dead, that the Messiah rises from the dead on the third day? You can't. There's no specific prophecy. So when it says in accordance to the scriptures, it's, a, it's saying a, according to the typology in the scriptures, how that all over the Bible, this third day concept is there. And so what I'm fulfilling is the type, the type of Jonah, the type of Hezekiah, the type of Esther, the type of the third day. That's what God is fulfilling there. So it's not a specific reference. It's a typology or a pattern that he's fulfilling. So, at, and that's perfectly fine. There's lots of this in the Bible. It's not a lesser type of prophecy. In fact, that's even a more powerful prophecy if you think about it. So then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship. I'm blown away by Abraham that he can call this worship. But this shows true faith in God, that he's seeing this as not something that's the biggest nightmare of his life, which he could have seen it that way. But he's thinking, you know what? This is a chance for me to see a resurrection that I'm going to offer my son, I'm going to kill him, and God's going to bring him back to life? There's part of Abraham's like, yeah, let's see this. This is pretty amazing. Not to sound gruesome, he said, but, but he says, and, and, he, and Abraham has so much faith that he says this, that we will go and worship, and we will come again to you. He's confident that the two of them are coming back. So he's fully believing that God's going to do what he promised. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. Again, this is not a little boy. Think of a stack of wood big enough to build an altar for a burnt offering. 
This is a lot of wood. Some people even speculated that if Isaac is a type of Christ, wouldn't it be, make a lot of sense, and it even fits the numbers, that Isaac is 33 years old, the same age as Jesus when he carried his cross. So again, I can't say for sure that's the case, but we know he's at least 17. But if you compare chapter 22 to the next chapter, 23, he could be as old as 37. So we don't know exactly the timetable there. So he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so they went, both of them, together. So if, if Isaac is at least 17 years old, he's, the wheels are starting to turn. Okay, wood, fire, knife, no lamb. And this is a quiet conversation that's lasting for days where he's like trying to work up the nerve to ask dad, where's the lamb? And he doesn't really ask till the last minute. But again, where he's going up Mount Moriah, centuries later, Jesus in the exact same place geographically would carry his cross. The exact same place. Is God in charge of history? Amen. He is sovereign over everything. And so Isaac is a picture of our Savior. And so Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he says, here I am, my son. He says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is a lamb for a burnt offering? He'd seen burnt offerings before. He knew the routine. He probably had carried wood before, but this time he's wondering, where is the animal? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So once again, it says, and they both went together. This was a test for both of them. And when they came to the place at which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. Once again, he could have hired, he could have brought the two young men with him. He could have done it the same way. But Abraham, think of the agony he's going through as he's placing each piece of wood in formation as he's contemplating what is about to happen. And then he bound Isaac. Now again, a muscular teenager, 100-year-old man, how do you bind that unless he's willing He's willing. Now, why did he bind? We don't really know, other than it's going to be a burnt offering, but he should be dead by then, or maybe he's going to have, I don't know, flinching. Some people said, you know, when you, like, you know how when you cut a chicken, that body goes around like that, that body flails, that maybe Abraham, I don't know what it is, but again, we, we have to put yourself in a situation, and he laid him on the altar. What a painful situation. So how old is Isaac? He's old enough to know what's going on. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife. Just holding this right now is hard. To think of any one of my sons or daughters and to do this. This is, man, you talk about a test. And keep in mind, God didn't have him do it. Okay, God's not a murderer, but he, he pushed this guy to his limits. And you know, parents, you know how much you love your kids. And you would die for them. But do we love them more than God? That's the test here. That's, I think it's part of it. What a powerful situation that Abraham was in. So then we, fortunately, God provides a replacement sacrifice. And then the angel of the Lord, notice it doesn't say an angel of the Lord. This is the angel of the Lord. Who is this? This is Jesus Christ. This is what's called a Christophany. Jesus Christ himself comes into this situation and he calls on and says, Abraham, Abraham, twice to make sure he didn't hear him the first time, that he's not, no accident's going to happen. Oops, what happened? I didn't hear you the first time. He calls him out twice. And of course, Abraham's response is classic. 
Here I am. Please rescue me. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do any harm to him. But think of the Lord Jesus in this situation because he just had lunch with them a few years prior. And he's like, you're not going to kill your son. This is meant for me. This is where I will be. This is where I'm going to be sacrificed. It's not Isaac. Isaac's just a picture of me. And, and this is where I will be. And, and Jesus is thinking about that, what's to come. It's kind of like at the wedding of Canaan, where all the celebrations going on, and Jesus is like, you know, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Even the wedding reminded him of that. Every step along the way reminded of Jesus well, what was coming and that cross that was set before him. He said, for now I know, as if, and God's using an anthropomorphism. God knew all along. He's talking to him as a man talks to a man. I know, this shows me, you prove, this proves to me that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. We have to ask ourselves, what are we withholding from God? What part of our area, our area of our life, big or small, are we saying, God, you're Lord of everything, but just not this here. I, I need to keep this for me. I need to keep this secret sin. I need to keep this thing that makes me happy. I need whatever it may be, some chemical dependency or whatever it may be. Is there something you're withholding from God? God says, give, me, give it all to me. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's really not Lord at all. So Abraham lifted up his eyes. <clears throat> you know when you're depressed, you know where your eyes tend to be? Down. He lifts up his eyes. This burden is off his shoulder. This, this nightmare is over. And he says, and he looked and behold, look, look at this carefully. Behold, behind him was a ram. And the word behold here makes us, is a hyperlink to fast forward to John the Baptist. What? Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Behold, here's a ram to take away, to take your place, Isaac. And Abraham went, he took the ram, and he offered up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Isaac deserved to die because Isaac was a sinner. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. All of us deserve to die. So if God had taken his life at this point or at any point, if God takes anybody's life at any point, it's because we all deserve it. It's only by his mercy that we wake up and breathe every day. He could snuff out the world like that if he chose not to, but God is merciful. He is compassionate. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Isaac is breathing a sigh of relief. Imagine cutting those, now taking that same knife that was meant to kill him, is now going to set him free. And the ropes are being cut and Isaac gets up and hugs his father. Probably the best hug they'd ever had in their life. You know, put yourself in that situation. And so God named the place the place of the nightmare. No. The place of testing. No. The place where God provided. The place where God provides. Jehovah Jireh, my provider. Let's look at the blessings of obedience. Abraham obeyed and God, it paid off. So the angel of the Lord called him to a second time. You think Abraham's even nervous? Oh, what do you want now? You want Sarah? What's going on here? No, 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 no. It's, it's good news this time. It's all good news. All good news. And say, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this, Abraham. Way to go, Abraham, because you've done this. You have not withheld your son, your only son. He keeps repeating that. I will surely bless you. And you know, I told you before I'm going to bless you. I mean, I'm really going to bless you. And I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. Isaac's alive. The promise is coming true. The stars of heaven, the sands of the sea. Have you tried counting those lately? It's not possible. And in your offspring, in your descendants, shall all the nations of the world be blessed because 
you have obeyed my voice. God is sovereign, and yet man still has free will. And how those two work is just beyond our comprehension. But God had a plan, but this whole plan depended on Abraham's obedience. If Abraham had not obeyed, the whole plan would have fallen apart. I wonder how many people will be blessed because of your obedience. How many people were blessed even this morning cause just because you're here, just because you served here, just because there's people watching your babies right now. Be, be people who are obeying God's call, others are blessed. That's why God blesses you, not so that you can keep it, but so that you can be a blessing to others. And when you obey, it doesn't just help you. There is a ripple effect that goes out for eternity of people who are blessed because of your obedience, because of my obedience. So Abraham's obedience. We're sitting here today because Abraham obeyed. So Abraham returned to his young men. Okay, And I believe the Bible says, let everything be confirmed in the mouth of how many witnesses? Two witnesses. So these two young men are witnesses to what happened here. And so here we had the call to sacrifice, where Abraham's called. He was willing to sacrifice. You see the replacement sacrifice, the blessings of obedience, and that brings us to the last point, the blessings in the future. This chapter ends in a really weird way. It ends with some crazy genealogy full of names I can't pronounce, okay? And so, now after these things, after all these amazing things happen, it was told to Abraham, hey, guess what? Milcah, the wife of your brother, okay, she's had kids. They haven't been in touch. They haven't kept them on Facebook or Instagram. They haven't seen each other. They, there was no family reunions. He has no idea what's going on with his brother. He's telling them, hey, your brother's had a bunch of kids with funny names. Uz and Buzz, you know, they're twins, right? Probably have to be with names like that. Kemuel, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Diplo. You see the names right here. And then there's Bethuel. And then it says, and to these eight, there's more than just eight. He has a concubine. Bad news, don't do that. But, you know, and he did it anyway because of the culture. And he's had four kids. Now, eight plus four is 12. How many did Ishmael have, tribes? 12. How many will Israel have? 12. This is a foreshadow of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's saying that this is already in the works, and it's interesting they worked that out. But it's also, I skipped something on purpose. He said, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Who, who will she marry when she grows up? Isaac the one who just survived the sacrifice, he's saying, hey, guess what? I got a bride for this son. Do you see the beautiful picture there? Watch this carefully and look, and look at the colors. The father, Abraham, was willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. The son was willing to lay down his life. Their obedience is blessed with the promise of a future beautiful bride, Rebecca. And watch what this is painting for us. Come on, change here. There we go. Our Heavenly Father did sacrifice His only Son, Jesus, and Jesus laid down His life. His obedience is blessed with the promise of a future beautiful bride, and who is that? That's us. You see the beautiful picture here in this gospel? The gospel's everywhere, is it not? It's everywhere. Every, every chapter of Genesis, it's beautiful how that works out. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. In a moment of crisis, Isaac cries out to his father, and his father answers. But when Jesus cried out to his father, he heard nothing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the heavenly father didn't say, well, here I am, son. He turned his back on his only son and rejected him so that you and me could be accepted. 
He did not hear his voice so that we could hear the voice of God. The, what Isaac went through is a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ went even farther. There was no angel crying out saying, stop, don't sacrifice your son. Jesus Christ was sacrificed. Remember that chiasm we looked at a while back? When I was studying for this, I'm like, okay, there's the center. My son, the lamb for a burnt offering, a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's the main point. And I missed something. Right smack dab in the middle of this chiasm is what? God will provide himself. That's the main point. You know, some translations say God will provide for himself, but there's no for in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's God will provide himself. Jesus Christ becomes human flesh and he is the lamb. God provides himself as the human sacrifice. John 1.29, the next day he saw, John the Baptist sees Jesus coming toward him and says, behold, everybody read this with me, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My question for you this morning, dear friend, is have your sins been taken away? Are they still upon your shoulders? Think of and bear with me for a moment, the worst things you've ever done. You don't have to, we're not going to have a time of confession right now. Keep them in your mind. But those things are weighing heavy on your shoulders if you haven't let Jesus lift them. Jesus came and took your cross upon his shoulders so that he could take your sin, your shame, your guilt, all those horrible things. He took it upon himself, upon his cross, and he died in your place just like the ram took the place of Isaac, the Lamb of God, Jesus, takes your place so that you don't have to die and spend eternity separated from him. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Would you do that? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? We're almost done with the message. But if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you've never given your life to him, being willing to sacrifice yourself for him because he sacrificed himself for you, and made him Lord of your life, the Savior of your soul, and asked him to forgive you of all your sins. If you've never made that decision, why not do that right here, right now? You could pray a prayer, something like this. The prayer does not save you, just you reaching out in faith does. But Lord Jesus, I know you died for me. I know that I'm the one who deserved to die because of all the things I've done. Thank you for taking my place on the cross. Thank you for dying for all my sins. I believe you did that for me that you were buried, and that you truly did rise again from the dead. And that is my hope of salvation. I give my life to you right now. Father, thank you so much for the, this beautiful story. It's a shame, Father, that so many people have such a hard time with this when you are painting such a beautiful picture. Lord, help us to see with eyes of faith what the, the beauty of the gospel is and how it truly is the only hope for America and for the world. We thank you for loving us in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. If you want to know more about the gospel, maybe you're not ready to make this decision, let's talk. I'd love to take you to lunch, whatever. This is my number. Text me or call me anytime. Or if you made a decision to follow Christ, let me know that today. Well, I want to talk to you about your new steps as a follower and a child of God. Amen. We're going to do question and answer time right now. Um, Amanda, would you like to help with that? All right, cool. So if you have a question, you can text it in right now. Um, and uh, or you can raise your hand if you'd rather do it that way. Question one. Was Sarah aware of Abraham's plans to offer Isaac as a burnt offering? Would she have tried to interfere? Wow, great question. That's a really good question. As far as I know, there's nothing in the scriptures that says she was or she wasn't. If you see Abraham's track record, he wasn't telling her everything. 
because Abraham told her, I'm sorry, God told Abraham about a son and all that stuff like that. And then when the angels come in person, they say, hey, you know, we're here to tell you we're going to fulfill that promise. Sarah laughs like this is the first time she's heard of it. So Abraham kind of does have a track record of withholding information. Like he waits till he gets to Egypt to say, hey, by the way, make sure you tell them that you're my sister. Okay, and so, yeah, he's a husband that's kind of not standing up. Maybe, maybe, we don't know for sure. And yeah, that would have been quite a test for Sarah too, had she known. You know, she would have been following along and saying, oh, no, 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 you're not. You know, who knows? That's a great question. Next question. Um, why did God want John the Baptist to baptize Jesus? And that's a great question. And there's several answers, okay? Number one is Jesus didn't do it because he got saved and needed to show repentance. Because the first baptisms were the baptism of repentance. Jesus had nothing to repent of. So he, number one, he did it as an example, okay? But number two, it showed what he, baptism, the word baptism means to immerse, that he was being immersed into now his ministry. This was the beginning of his ministry to fulfill the gospel, also, what does baptism say? In Romans chapter 4, it says we are baptized into his body. So Christ was becoming a member of his own church. He said, and I will build my church. So he's the first member of his church. He baptized the disciples who are his church. And he even told them in Matthew 18, if you have a problem, go tell it to the church. Present tense. So the church isn't, some people believe the church was birthed at Pentecost. Well, why is Jesus talking about tell things to the church? Or I'm going to build my church if Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Um, so this is also the initiation of his ministry because at that point, that's where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And there you see the Trinity in there. You got the, the physical presence of the son, the voice of the father, and the manifestation of the spirit all together there at the baptism. So those, there's several things that, that made his baptism important, but uh, those are just a few. Okay. Any other questions? Let me turn that alarm off if you want. Um, any other oh yeah, Lorenzo. Well, I'm sorry. Why why are you asking as if it's a change? All right. So I probably didn't communicate clearly. So let me say it again. So the Bible, as it's being written by Moses, the first time Moses uses the word love is in this story. Okay. It wasn't changed later. Moses got it right the first time. So we believe the word of God is inspired and it's inerrant and it's perfect. The New Testament was written later, and so just like the first book of the Bible mentions love about the only son. The first book of the New Testament mentions love in regards to the only son. And God, the Holy Spirit, inspired the words to be written that way. So there was no change later. Okay? So in, uh, that, I'm just, it's not a coincidence that the first two references are the father sacrificing his only, recognizing his only son is the first two times love is used. And the first time it's used in John, for God so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, just like Abraham. So God's orchestrating scripture to be written the way it does is amazing. Think about all these chiasms. The whole Bible is a chiasm. Chapters 11 through 22 were a chiasm. All stuff. And how they can all overlap and not mess each other up. I have no, I have no idea except the other way. That's just evidence to me that the whole, that God's word is inspired by the spirit of God. Any others that came in? Question. Okay. Do you think Abraham trusted with the thought, even if he doesn't bring him back, or provide a replacement? Do you think his motive had to be pure to be really be able to give him up before God brought him the replacement? Do you want to read it again? Yes, that's a good question, but it's complicated, so I want to make sure I answered yeah. it right. You want to read it again? Sure. Oh, yes. Okay, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> okay, ready? Here we go. 
Do you go somewhere or you come back, Amanda? Come back. Do you think Abraham trusted with the thought, even if he doesn't bring him back or provide a replacement? Do you think his motive had to be pure to to really be able to give him up before God brought the replacement? So two two parts there. Um, I'm sure Moses, uh, Moses, Noah, no, wait, who is this guy named Abraham? Phew, I haven't had enough coffee this morning. I'm sure Abraham was conflicted. So was his motives pure? None, we're never, we never are. The only one that has pure motives is God. We all have in our psyche, uh, altruism, I don't know if it really exists. I don't know if anybody can ever do anything and it be 100% pure in their motives. That I could debate that with you and maybe I'd be wrong. Um, but I don't think that, I think we'll just take the scripture for what it says in Hebrews, that he knew that God would raise him from the dead. I don't think he even thought there was a chance that it wouldn't happen that way. Now, whether it would be then or three days later, that would have been typical of God to do that. Or maybe years later, he knew he was going to come back because God promised that the stars of the heaven, the sands of the sea would be his in, in children. So I believe he, he did believe that. And so I think he truly trusted God. And that even though there's part of his flesh that was wrestling with it, every time you make a good decision or decide not to do something, there's part of you is torn. But that's, that's until, we're, until we're raptured out of this world, there's always the flesh and the spirit are always going to fight. And I'm sure, Abraham, that was quite a battle going on. All right, great. Um, let's go ahead and stand and we'll be dismissed. Um, if you've received some of these cards that have the QR code on the back, be sure to prayerfully give those out this week and use them to invite people to Revolution Church. And that QR code will take you to the gospel. And it's a great way to share the love of Christ. There's some on the table back here and there's some on the table out there. And you can get those on your way out. Um, if, you, if you're able to stay for the newcomer's luncheon, for those who are new Revolution Church and you've not attended one before, please stay. We've got barbecue ribs and homemade potato salad and desserts and all kinds of great stuff. It'll be in this building over here to my left, your right, but feel free to mingle before you're dismissed, especially take time to welcome our guests that we're glad they're here. Let's give them a hand again for being here. All right. Patrick, I heard you taught a good lesson to the adults this morning. So, uh, of course, it was Stacy that said it, so I don't know. You know but, uh, yeah. hey, would you, would you dismiss us in prayer, please?